Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hi, everyone. Hope you had a terrific week. We are coming to you Friday evening, December 4th from Marin County, California, known for its natural beauty, its wild turkeys, and more recently for its occasional pandemic-related lockdowns, which are being implemented again this Sunday, along with five other Bay Area counties. I'm sure a lot of you are in the same boat, or you will be soon, but for what it's worth, here we are about to see both indoor and outdoor dining shut down, along with personal services like hair salons and gyms, and oh my God, I'm seeing that grocery stores are going to be limited to 20% capacity too. Hmm. So we are about to become wan and unkempt for the second time this year, which kind of stinks, but it is what it is, which is to say, SOS, help us, please. We are about to commit seppuku, that form of Japanese ritual suicide by disembowelment. <coughs> you think I'm kidding. I'm not sure I'm kidding. But on to the week's news. This past Tuesday, Salesforce announced plans to buy Slack for $27.7 billion, a price that was more than 50% higher than Slack's closing price the day before. Although Salesforce said that it would use Slack as an interface to its other software tools, the market was not impressed with the deal. Salesforce shares fell almost 24% the day after the announcement. Since then, Salesforce stock has recovered substantially and is only down 6.5% from Tuesday's closing price. But analysts like Carl Kierstead of UBS clearly believe Salesforce overpaid. Apart from the fact that Slack is unprofitable and generated trailing 12-month revenues of just $833 million, investors are skittish about the Slack deal because of Microsoft Teams, a Slack clone that has grown from 0 to 115 million users since its launch in 2016. By contrast, Slack has just 12 million total users, a 4 million user increase over its 2016 total. In How Microsoft Crushed Slack, Casey Newton's excellent article from his newsletter, The Platformer, Box CEO Aaron Levy explains that the winning app will almost always be the one with a giant Salesforce behind it. While Salesforce's connections with senior procurement officers and finance people will help it address this sales distribution problem, Salesforce's dream of using Slack to compete with Microsoft in the business software market faces another big challenge. Salesforce doesn't have anywhere near the depth of software that Microsoft offers. As Greg Johnson, a former Salesforce executive, told the Wall Street Journal, Slack is a nice start, but it's not the end. If Salesforce wants to compete head-to-head with Microsoft, they need more than what Slack has to offer. Among other things, he believes Salesforce needs a good video technology along the lines of Zoom. In the past few years, Salesforce has made a number of big acquisitions. Look for the CRM giant to continue opening up its checkbook in its quest to take down Mr. Softy. Another story this week is a tragic one, and it centers on the death a week ago of Zappos longtime CEO Tony Shea, who was rescued from a house fire in Connecticut two weeks ago, but didn't survive his injuries. Shea, a night owl with a sweet disposition, was just 46, and his sudden death prompted a massive outpouring of grief from countless people who'd come into contact with him, from Bill Clinton to investor Chris Saka to the singer Jewel, who was apparently quite close to Shea. Forbes today published a look at Shea's final months with the help of 20 people who were close to him at various points of his life. 
life. Forbes was also given a letter to Shay that Jewel had written him after visiting him in August in Park City, Utah, where he'd been snapping up properties after finally leaving Zappos as CEO this summer. The apparent idea was to build a city within a city in Park City, which Shay had famously done in downtown Las Vegas with some success, despite the odds. But Jewel's letter to Shay shines a light on how fragile Shay had grown by the time of her visit. Forbes reports that within a day of her trip, she left, FedExing him a handwritten note shortly afterward that was blunt and said she worried he was taking too many drugs and that he'd surrounded himself with people who were too ignorant or willing to be complicit in his own slow motion suicide. In fact, Forbes reports that a lot of people surrounding Shay in Park City were on his payroll, which is a phenomenon I'd witnessed up close in Las Vegas when I visited Shay for a story in 2012. I wrote a piece afterward about what he was trying to build because I was in awe of it, but I was also worried. Details are continuing to merge around Shay's death, but no matter what emerges, it's clear that many hundreds, if not thousands of people, agree that Shay, who was brilliant and made a positive impact on many, many people throughout his work, is gone too soon from this world. In recent weeks, venture capitalists David Blumberg, Keith Raboy, and Joe Lonsdale have all made very public announcements about their respective decisions to leave California. Poor governance at the local level in San Francisco and statewide in California has driven us away, said Blumberg. I think San Francisco is just so massively improperly run and managed that it's impossible to stay here, Raboy announced. Bad policies discourage business and innovation, stifle opportunity, and make life in major cities ugly and unpleasant, Lonsdale told the Wall Street Journal. Now comes word that Elon Musk is also packing up and heading off to Texas. As diehard Muscovites surely know, the world's now second richest man said in May that he was selling off all of his California properties. In the interim, Musk has ramped up Tesla's operations in Texas and struck up a relationship with Texas's governor, Greg Abbott. While Musk has clearly found something to love in Texas, he has also been a loud critic of California, which has been disparaged by the super-rich for its high taxes and stiff regulations. Will the last person who leaves California please turn the lights out? Up next, this week's interview featuring Ev Williams and James Joaquin. Williams is among Silicon Valley's best-known founders, having started Blogger, then famously Twitter, and his newest publishing platform, Medium. Joaquin, meanwhile, ran a number of companies, including Ophoto, a Kodak company, before jumping into venture capital, first with Catamount Ventures and in 2014, forming Obvious Ventures with Williams and Vishal, a third partner. We talked with Williams and Joaquin about a wide variety of today's headlines and where their focus will be in 2021. But first, a word from our sponsor. It's no secret that tax laws may change under the incoming Biden administration. Acuity Realty, an experienced Silicon Valley commercial real estate developer, can help. With project partners that include Apple and Cigna Realty Advisors, Acuity focuses exclusively on multifamily and office property development in Silicon Valley, as well as Qualified Opportunity Zones, or QOZs. According to the IRS, a QOZ is an economically distressed community where new investments under certain conditions are eligible for preferential tax treatment. The problem is QOZs are often located in undesirable areas. That's why Acuity's current development is so interesting. Along with $90 million of institutional capital co-invested from its REIT partner, Acuity is developing the Carlisle QOZ just two blocks away from Google's new 80-acre campus in San Jose. And it's looking for individuals and institutions that are interested in growing their capital in a tax-efficient manner. 
Acuity has a long background in producing significant returns for investors. Over its last $1.2 billion of projects, it has generated an IRR of 49.9%. If you're interested in learning more about how you could possibly reduce your tax exposure from capital gains, or you just want to diversify your portfolio, please visit acuityrealty.com. That's A-C-Q-U-I-T-Y realty.com. Or email Greg Ovalle at ov at acuityrealty.com. Contact Acuity today. So guys, I'm so thankful to you for joining us today. It's a, it's a pleasure to be talking with you both. I thought we could start with one of the biggest headlines of the day, which is tech CEOs saying goodbye to San Francisco. The Information had a great piece out this week about some of the names that I wasn't aware are leaving, including Dropbox's Drew Houston, Splunk CEO Douglas Merritt, Joe Lonsdale very publicly said goodbye to California and the Wall Street Journal recently, Brex's young founders, the Tanium CEO, what is going on? What do you make of this shift? Do you think it's attracting too much attention or perhaps not enough? I haven't seen the piece yet, although I moved away from the Bay Area a little over a year ago with my family to New York. I, I lived in San Francisco for 20 years and I had never lived in New York and thought, why not go? Now seems like a good time. Turns out I was wrong. That was a very bad time to move to New York. So <laughs> I was there for six months and quickly came back to California, which is a great place to be, at least the nature part of California in a world where you're not going to bars and restaurants and seeing people. Did you move back here earlier this year when COVID took hold? Yeah, in March, Manhattan suddenly seemed not ideal. So I'm now in the peninsula. What drove you from the city initially? It was really for me just honestly looking for a change, but I think that there was an enabling factor that probably could be common in many of these cases, which is the fact that I no longer had to be in the office in San Francisco every day. Basically, for most of those 20 years, all my working life was in an office in San Francisco mm -hmm. with a company, generally a company I had started. So I thought it was important to be there. This was pre-COVID and remote work, but remote work was becoming more common. And I noticed in 2018 or so, with this massive number of companies that were in San Francisco, not just in Silicon Valley, that were both startups and large public companies and pre-IPO companies, the competition for talent had gotten more extreme than it had ever been. And so it got me, along with a lot of founders and CEOs, thinking about maybe the advantage of hiring locally and having everybody in the same office, the pros were starting to get outweighed by the cons, just in terms of talent competition, access to talent. And of course, the tools and technology that make remote work possible were getting better all the time. And we were living on Slack and we weren't yet living on Zoom, but it just seemed like, oh, well, we can now be more flexible. And I think James was paying attention to this trend as well. But that enabled me to start asking the question, do I have to be in San Francisco all the time? And now in the last six, eight months, however long it's been now that we've definitely proven we don't have to be in the office every day if we're working at a tech company. Now our minds can wander and our bodies can now follow. Right, right. Which is wonderful. I do wonder if, like you though, we'll see people coming back. I think there's this notion that 
it's got to be better somewhere else. The, the city became really congested. Obviously, taxes are potentially beginning to become a real issue in California, which is, I think, driving a lot of people out of here. But it'll be interesting to see if Silicon Valley does actually lose its center of gravity. This is James. I think these things move in cycles. And I totally agree with Ev's comments that we've seen a structural change with COVID where all work is remote work. And mm-hmm. that has forced maybe a decade level advance of tools and technologies to figure out how to bring teams together when they're not in the same building in the same room. That's actually very world positive. That'll enable us to tap new talent. It also enables us to distribute the wealth creation of Mm -hmm. tech startups. That wealth can be created across a broader geography, which is exciting. But that said, I'm long on California. I'm long on San Francisco. And Connie, you were at Red Herring in the early days of the internet. I was a tech CEO during and after the internet bubble. I was a tech CEO during the mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. So I've just seen these cycles before. And I think we're seeing one of those cycles where commercial real estate is down, apartment vacancies are up in San Francisco, prices are falling. At some point, there's a tipping point where suddenly people start moving back into San Francisco. It will find a natural equilibrium. Sure. And there are so many upsides too. When you mentioned world positive, just the matter of carbon emissions falling so significantly this year as people stopped commuting. And also, I'm hoping more people will be able to move back into San Francisco who aren't part of the tech scene. We sent our kids to public school in San Francisco for many years, and none of their teachers lived in the city. Everyone lived in Nevada or was driving an hour into the city every day, which was is untenable. There's police, fire, artists, musicians. We want that diversity for sure in our city. Right, right, right. Guys, I want to drill into some of the themes that you're investing in on behalf of Obvious. But I also wanted to ask you really quickly, uh, as a co-founder of Twitter, I have to ask about this presidential transition that I think is finally happening, maybe, although that could have changed again by the time this podcast airs. In January, Donald Trump will finally lose the privileges he enjoyed as president. And where he was given a pass a lot of the time because he was speaking as a world leader whose thinking needed to be known is the argument. Given the amount of misinformation he was publishing routinely, do you think Twitter should have cracked down on him sooner? How would you rate its handling of this particular president who obviously really tested its boundaries in every way? I think what Twitter's done, especially recently, is a pretty good solution. I don't agree with the notion that he should be removed altogether. It should have been a long time ago. I think having the visibility and to literally seeing what the president is thinking at any given moment, as ludicrous as it is, is helpful. And mm-hmm. I could see the counter argument for that. What he would be doing if he didn't have Twitter is unclear, but he would be doing something to get his message out there. Mm-hmm. And what the company has done most recently with the warnings on his tweets or blocking them is... I think a great solution. It's providing more information. It's kind of buyer beware about this information. And it's a bolder step than any platform had done previously. And it's a good version of an in-between where where previously we'd talk about just kicking people off or allowing freedom of speech. And I think the goal is always to give people as much information as possible that's helpful mm-hmm. to them and let them make up their mind. And that's what the misinformation notices do in my mind. So I think it's a good move. I wondered as somebody who has spent much of his career just focused on content and distribution, do you have any other thoughts about 
what Twitter or other platforms could be doing, because there is going to be somebody who has the same autocratic tendencies and who is a lot smarter than Trump who comes along at some point. And I just mm-hmm. wonder what can be done about it. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any brilliant solution that others probably haven't thought of. I think as all of society gets more information savvy, that's one hope over the long term. And it wasn't that long ago that if something was in media, quote unquote, it was accepted as true. And now I think everyone's skeptical. We've learned that that's not necessarily the case and certainly not online. Now, unfortunately, we're at the point where a lot of people lost faith in everything published or shared anywhere. But I think that's a step along the evolution of just getting more media savvy and knowing that sources really matter. And as we build both better tools and more media savvy consumer base, I think things will get better. Yeah, I hope so. Um, I also, before we move on, I wanted to talk to you about one of your other companies, Medium. Last year, Medium began charging $50 per year for users to access an unlimited amount of articles from individual writers and publishing partners. And as somebody who's just interested in this, also because of delivering a free product that's ad-driven and also working for TechCrunch, which has a free product and also a paid product. It's just always interesting to me how you start charging, how much you start charging, and who's paying for it. Have you said how many subscribers the platform now has? We haven't given a precise number. I, I can tell you it's in the high hundreds of thousands. So it's going really well. It's grown a ton. It's been a couple years actually now. And I'm a very firm believer in the model not only that people will pay for quality information, but that it's it's just a much healthier model for a platform, for publishers, be they individuals or companies, because it creates that feedback loop of quality gets rewarded. And there's no shenanigans. At the end of the day, if people aren't getting value, they unsubscribe, which isn't the case with an advertising model. If people click, you keep making money and you can kind of keep tricking people or keep appealing to lowest common denominator impulses. And so since we've been doing it, I I think it's become much more widely accepted that people actually will pay. There's a couple decades where the mantra was no one will pay for content on the internet, which obviously seems silly now, but that was the established belief for such a long time. Absolutely. And it's interesting because so much content now is behind a firewall. It seems like the entire world has gravitated toward this model. I'm wondering, do you think that you were smart to focus on growth first? Do you ever think you should have charged from the outset? I I do sometimes wonder if it's harder to throw on the switch afterward. Yes and no. I think when we switched this model in 2017, We created a subscription, but the vast majority of content was and actually still is outside of the paywall on Medium. And our model is, of course, different than most because it's a a platform and we don't own the content. And we have an agreement with our creators that they can publish behind the paywall if they want. And we will pay them if they do that and members read their content. But they can also publish outside the paywall if, if they're not interested in making money and want maximum reach. Those models are actually very complementary because the scale of the platform brings a lot of people in to, through the top of the funnel. And those who want to opt in to the paid content can do so, but not everyone needs to. And scale yeah. is really important for most businesses, but for a paywall, it's especially important because people have to be visiting with enough frequency to actually hit the paywall and, and be motivated to pay. So I think without the scale, it would be harder to do, A. And B, the world wasn't necessarily as ready for it before. There was a little bit of a 
tragedy of the commons and that it is really hard to pay, charge for content if no one else is. Right. And if your content isn't super niche and specialized, but in a world where actually that I, I call it the rationalization of publishing is what's been happening the last couple of years where quality products actually cost money. And that creates a much healthier ecosystem and marketplace. And I think it's going to raise all boats as long as they are putting out the quality information. Well, speaking of niche content, out of curiosity, what do you make of Substack, which for readers and listeners who may not know is a company that invites writers to create their own newsletters using a subscription model and then takes a cut of their revenue in exchange for sort of a host of backend services? I think there's a bit of a creator renaissance going on right now that is part of a bigger wave of A, people being willing to pay for um, quality information and B, independent writers and thinkers actually breaking out on their own and building brands and followings. And I think we're going to see more of that. And before we move on, one last question about Medium, because we are listened to and read by a lot of VCs. Medium has raised $132 million, And I just wondered, would you want to raise more? Where do you want to take the platform in the next 12 to 24 months? We are continuing to invest, continuing to raise. We're not yet profitable. So I anticipate that we will raise more money. I think there's a very big business to be built here. While more and more people are willing to pay for content, I don't think that means that most people will subscribe to dozens of sources, whether they're websites with paywalls or newsletters. And if you look at how basically every media category has evolved, a lot of them have gone through this shift from free to paid, at least at a higher end of the market. That includes music, television, and even games. And at the high end, there tend to be players who own a large part of the market. And I think that comes down to offering the best consumer value proposition that gives people lots of optionality, lots of personalization, lots of value for one price. And so I think that the same thing is going to play out in this area. I think that's a multi-billion dollar business and that's what we're aiming to build. So guys, let's move on to Obvious, which is such an interesting firm and has a world positive mission. James, how many companies is Obvious talking with on a weekly basis right now? We look at or consider about 2,000 investment opportunities every year. Most of those get filtered right up front. Maybe they're in a geography we don't invest in because we're focused on North America. We're not focused on Europe or Asia. Or maybe they're what we would call world neutral or world negative. They're outside of our thematic areas. But then a subset of those actually my team and I meet with. And the bottom of that funnel is that we make between 10 and 12 investments per year. And it seems like the different partners have very specific focuses. You are focused on investments with a plant-forward approach. Is that true? That's one of the areas that I focus on for sure. We've got five investing partners in the firm. We recently added Tina Huangto to the team. She joined us from TCV, Technology Crossover Ventures. Ev is not an investing partner. He's a co-founder and he works with us in strategy, but Ev's busy running Medium, as you heard. But across those five partners, we have different specialties that we think of as themes. Within food, I lead our work in plant-based protein and plant-forward food and consumer products companies. Thanks to the work that Ev and Biz did, we were very early investors in Beyond Meat. 
And we are also an early lead investor in Miyoko's Creamery, which is a plant-based butter and cheese company. That's one of our fastest growing portfolio companies right now. Urban Remedy is another plant-forward company in the portfolio. So we've done a lot in this idea of let's replace animal protein with delicious, nutritious plant-based protein. We think if we do that, it's really, really impactful in a world positive way for the environment and for human health. And Beyond Meat is our first real success story there because we went from early investor to investing in one of the top performing IPOs in 2019. Yeah, it's still astonishing to me how far Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods have come in the last handful of years. Do you have to agree on an investment since you each do have a little bit of a specialty? How do deals get greenlit? That's a great question. Inside baseball is that we we tend to form two-person teams on a given team when it reaches the due diligence stage. So there's always a lead partner or managing director that's championing the deal, but there's a second person from the investment team working on that deal. And then ultimately, a, a CEO or a management team would present to the full investment committee before we make a decision to issue a term sheet. We don't win 100% of those term sheets that we write, but we obviously are very competitive and try to win the best deals. Each managing director at the firm has what I call power of veto. So if someone felt really, really strongly that Obvious Ventures should not make that investment, they have that power of veto, that ability to stop an investment. But that rarely occurs in, in our practice. When you say you lose deals, of course, there's so much competition out there. Who are you seeing that's maybe newer to the table? It seems like more firms to their credit, are paying more attention to these important themes that you've been focused on from the start? I mean, if you look at where we started in our first fund, we we had this crazy idea that purpose-driven startups could reimagine trillion-dollar industries in a world-positive way, in a way that moves humanity forward. And we crafted these three big pillars, sustainable systems, healthy living, and people power that we've written a lot about. But a lot of the themes within those pillars were not the stuff that Sand Hill Road was doing seven, eight years ago. So we were very early in places like modern materials, computational biology, plant-based protein, full-stack healthcare. Three of the earliest investments we made in our first fund were Beyond Meat, replacing animal meat with plant-based meat, Diamond Foundry, growing carbon-neutral diamonds in plasma reactors instead of mining them from the earth, and Verda Health, a company trying to reverse type 2 diabetes instead of just treating it alongside a growing list of comorbidities. And all three of those ideas were outside the box when we invested. Roll the clock forward, we now see a lot more firms investing in these themes that are outside of the core consumer software, enterprise software. And frankly, we're excited about that. That's a good thing. We want more capital to flow into world positive companies. To answer your question, I would say, There are a number of new firms that kind of are similar age to us that have also been investing in some of these frontiers, and we actually have great co-investing relationships with them. And those are firms like Lux Capital that's Mm -hmm. done a lot of co-investing with us in the computational biology space. Data Collective is a firm that we've co-invested with and some of the full stack healthcare work that we do. S2G Ventures is a great plant-based protein food firm that we've co-invested with. So those are some of the new faces that we think are part of this world positive generation of new investors trying to solve big problems with startups and with cutting edge tech. Are you also interested in hallucinogens as well? 
Absolutely a, a theme that we've been doing research in. I should caveat that say we're interested in it specifically for medical use. We think that these former Schedule One drugs like ketamine, MDMA, psilocybin have great potential to solve the mental health crisis that not just the U.S., but that the world is seeing ramp to be a top five human health issue. And the early trials around treatment-resistant depression, PTSD, suicidal ideation, these molecules are showing great promise. And so we're tracking that. We think that there's an opportunity to create a full-stack healthcare company similar to what we've done with Verta Health for diabetes or the work that Devoted Health, one of our portfolio companies, is doing for seniors in the Medicare space. We think there's going to be one or more new mental health companies built around this new kind of drug-assisted therapy that these molecules will enable. Like every other venture firm, Obvious focuses on economics and control when it comes to term sheets, but you've added values to your term sheets. Can you elaborate a little bit about what you're looking for and how readily entrepreneurs sign on to these? For sure. This is something about four years ago that we published and we open sourced. We created something that we call the World Positive Term Sheet. We created a template that we encourage entrepreneurs to use. We encourage other investors to use. And we've seen adoption of this by other firms as well. And the idea is simple that the term sheet, as you said, describes economics and control. We think it's important that investors and founders, and I think Ev can speak to this as a founder who's raised a lot of venture capital, you know, that moment that you take on an investor into your company, that's like a second family. That's a 10 plus year journey that you're signing on to. We think it's really important that everyone should be aligned around the mission, the purpose, and the values of the company. So we added an extra page to the term sheet and we ask our founders to actually write down their mission, write down their core values. How are they going to approach diversity on their management team and on their board of directors? How are they going to approach sustainability in their supply chain and their manufacturing partners? And the intent of the World Positive Term Sheet is not to have any kind of enforcement around that. It's really about alignment. It's about making sure that, hey, all the investors initial that page and we all make sure we're not going to have a surprise in the third board meeting where the founders say, yeah, we want our product to be cradle to cradle certified and it's going to cost 10 basis points of profit margin. You don't want one investor suddenly saying, well, hey, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for that. Let's make sure that we're all aligned about the core values right when we start. And the term sheet is the earliest place to find that alignment. Playing devil's advocate, isn't it one thing to say that you're an advocate for a certain type of sourcing of materials, but also that you don't want it to cost the company millions of dollars? Well, Alex, I think that's a discussion, right? And you're never going to be able to capture all of those nuances at the term sheet because you don't know what the future decisions are. So values-based leadership tends to happen on the front lines when you have to make those tough decisions. Our portfolio company, Diamond Foundry, they spent extra money and extra time to make their diamonds 100% carbon neutral. And we as investors fully support that. We knew that the founders cared about that going in. I could imagine there could be other investors that might be very upset about a single penny going towards that. And the idea of the World Positive Term Sheet is to kind of tease that out early and make sure that everyone wants to row in the same direction. 
Ev, you are an in- investor in a company that last month announced a small seed round called Sanity, a platform that helps users build and manage content flows on sites, which seems like a perfect fit for you. I just wonder, when is a deal an Ev Williams deal versus an Obvious Ventures deal? Yeah, that was one of the rare deals that I did separate from the firm. I used mm-hmm. to do a bit of angel investing before we formed Obvious. And one of the great reliefs for me has been just send all my deal flow to James and team. Mm-hmm. However, as James described, there's a focus of Obvious that both in size of deal and area that uh, doesn't include everything. So Sanity is basically a technology slash enterprise product. The reason it was interesting to me is because of the future of content. The infrastructure for that is super interesting for Medium's purposes. Obviously, I liked what Sanity was doing. I was really impressed. It just didn't align necessarily with the focus areas of obvious. And and so that's, that's why I did that deal. But it's really rare. It's when I have a relationship, another company I invested in recently is the browser company who's making a new browser. And so i brought that to James and teams that I'm interested in this. And I'm primarily interested because I know the founder really well. We actually incubated a company of his before Medium and Obvious. And that was a personal relationship. It was a seed deal. Things like that I do here and there. But the vast majority of the time, I will just go to Obvious. That's where I invest much, much more money. One of the things I found is James and our other partners there are better investors than I am. So (laughs) we have a better track record financially with the firm than I do with my angel deals. That's really funny. I'm sure you have no shortage of inbound pitches. And I'm sure Obvious Ventures as a firm is also getting hit by a lot of entrepreneurs. James, what percentage of your deals result from inbound introductions versus the firm actually going out? Do you have the bandwidth to seek out teams and companies maybe based on your thematic research? Absolutely. We think it's really important and we make sure we have the bandwidth to do both, Connie. We, we call it hunting and farming. So farming is farming the inbox, all those introductions from our networks that come in. Probably 60 to 70% of our investment portfolio came from that inbound, but 30 to 40% came from hunting, which is building a research point of view around a theme that we care about and then going out and mapping out who are all the entrepreneurs? Who are all the startups that are doing work in that area? Who are the angel investors and pre-seed funds that are doing good work in that area? Because those are important relationships for us as well. James, you talked about your themes, and I'm just wondering, is there a specific area that you are really drilling into right now that you can share with us? Yeah, I'll mention a couple. One that maybe is a past example to give you an example of that hunting that I talked about. My partner, Andrew Beebe, published a piece years ago called The Electrification of Everything. And this is our point of view that we want to put the internal combustion engine out of business. We want to move it to what we call the ice age is our pun for that. And we think that transportation will be cheaper and cleaner and more effective if it's powered by electrons. And we know how to make those electrons from the sun. So we started looking at every category of transportation and researching that. We we looked at automobiles. We felt like Elon had that really well covered. And then we looked at buses and heavy lift vehicles. And that's how we found a company called Proterra, which we invested in out of our second fund. Proterra is the leading electric bus manufacturer in the United States. 
They hold the Guinness Book of World Record for the the longest range electric vehicle ever built of any kind. Really incredible company. And they sell to cities and, and governments and campuses. And their buses are just cheaper and better to operate than a diesel bus, right? So they're such a perfect example of the kind of world positive work that we do. A new area that we're doing a lot of work in is what we call supply cloud. And we think this is really relevant during and post pandemic with a structural change from COVID. A lot of companies when the pandemic hit found they had a lot of fragility in their supply chain. And we think it created an acceleration and opportunity for companies to think about a more digital and a more robust supply chain. And in doing so, we think we're going to reduce a lot of waste and we're going to create a lot of environmental benefits from having a more anti-fragile, smarter supply chain. And, and as we digitize that, that's why our term is supply cloud, because we think that digital supply chain is going to be much more agile. And there are some really interesting companies building new technology to help that happen. That's great. What's a, maybe one investment in that area that people can start tracking? There's one that I can't talk about yet, but one that is public is a company called Dexterity. This is a robotic manufacturing company that we co-led a seed round in. Subsequent to that, Kleiner Perkins led a Series A in this company, and they're building some amazing soft robotics that have the ability to do intelligent identification of objects for picking and packing and shipping. The robots can work safely next to humans, so they're the opposite of an automotive robot that could decapitate a human. These are safe, flexible robots, and they're replacing a lot of dull, dirty, and dangerous human labor. And with COVID, we found this unbelievable change where for warehousing, the need for social distancing for safety moved these kinds of robots from a should have to a must have. That's one example of a company, I think, that's digitizing that piece of the supply chain. Given some of your themes, I'm wondering what your position is on Bitcoin and whether or not you look at investments in that area. That's an interesting question. We definitely did our research and we tried to answer the question, are there world positive applications for blockchain writ large and then specifically for Bitcoin as a blockchain cryptocurrency? We haven't found any that we have made an investment in yet. So we're open to the idea. We continue to research that space. But to date, we haven't found consumer or business applications that fit our thematic world positive focus. James, just wondering, you mentioned Tina earlier on coming from TCV. Does that suggest that obviously is going to be making more growth stage investments? I always think of it as very much an early stage firm. We're known for our early stage work, but fun fact, when we co-founded the firm, we crafted a barbell strategy where we said, because we're thematic, because we want to find the best plant protein companies, find the best electric transportation companies, we knew that some of those companies that we would be hunting might already be at the growth stage. So we architected our funds to be 75% early stage and 25% emerging growth, roughly. Those are not hard numbers, but we have the ability to invest at the growth stage as well as the early stage. And, and in fact, we have done that. That Proterra example that I mentioned, we actually invested at the growth stage in that electric bus company. So we've been doing that for seven years and with the addition of Tina, we're basically increasing our horsepower. We've got someone better and smarter than us. And we're really excited to have her on the team. That's great. So would you say Proterra maybe is your biggest investment in uh, dollar amounts so far? Verta Health and Good Eggs, I believe, are the two largest total dollar invested companies in our portfolio. 
Oh, interesting. James, I also wanted to ask before I let you guys go, and I, again, really, really appreciate your time. You were the president of Zoom, X-O-O-M, an online money transfer service that went public and was later acquired by PayPal. You worked with Zoom's co-founder, Kevin Hartz, who went on to co-found and run Eventbrite for many years and who was a guest on this program not that long ago when he made this new push into SPACs or blank check companies. Is that something that we might see obvious jump into as well? We talked to a lot of investors about this and it seems like everybody's thinking about it. Yeah, we call it the SPAC-a-palooza in terms of the (laughs) activity. And I know that Kevin has created one. And important note, his better half, Julia Hartz, is the person running Eventbrite as CEO. We certainly have looked at it. Ev, you might want to weigh in. I know you've gotten incoming about SPACs. Our take at Obvious is that we do not have any plans to create an Obvious Ventures SPAC. We tend to stick to our knitting. We think we've done a pretty good job of executing on our World Positive thesis. Our new World Positive report is a great milestone in showing the positive financial impact and social environmental impact of our portfolio companies. We're going to keep our nose to the grindstone and keep doing that. I will say that a number of our companies that are at the growth stage, if you think about a company that's in the 50 to $100 million of annual revenue where they're thinking about public markets, they're being approached by a number of SPACs as interesting targets. We're seeing that in the portfolio. And it's really up to our founders, not us, but we certainly have a voice on the board and we're considering, in some cases, our portfolio companies going public via a SPAC, but we are not trying to create or host our own SPAC at Obvious. Got it. Ev, anything to add there? Is anybody trying to invite you into their SPAC? I've gotten some pings, but uh, and I haven't looked into it seriously yet. I don't have a lot to, to say about SPACs. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be interesting. I think liquidity can be a good thing, and mm-hmm. hopefully many of these SPACs will work out. But I'm right. kind of in a wait-and-see mode like a lot of people. Right, right. Absolutely. Well, guys, thank you so much again. Really a treat to talk to you and learn more about what you're doing. That's it, everyone. Thank you so much for listening once again. We will see you back here next Friday. So long.